Romans chapter 2. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 2. Turn with me there, please. I want to read this first six verses and then kind of go off today on a, on a topic of goodness as we will um, somewhat do an explanation or what is customary for us at Calvary Chapel, a exposition that is just going through the Bible and giving the meaning of the verses read. Uh, but we'll kind of do that. We'll, 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 we'll complete an exposition next week on these six verses while focusing on the goodness of God this morning. Romans 2 verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, that is your irreverent heart. The idea of impotent and irreverent is connected to not having fear. It is you do not recognize God for who he is and where he is. Your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. So, this portion of scripture moves from chapter 1. Chapter 1 could be said that it is describing the Gentile world. The Gentile world in the sense that they have no religion or convictions that would stand against, speak against the various kinds of sexual immorality and murder in the way that the Jewish nation would speak against the various kinds of sexual immorality. It was accepted in the Roman and Greek world the Gentile world, for homosexual behaviors, uh, pedophile, that is, um, adults with young ones, adults with uh, young people uh, as young as eight, seven, six years old, grown men in their culture would be with young boys of that age. And... um, This was accepted in the Roman Greek Gentile world. And though the Apostle Paul is not specifically just talking about Gentiles, he's making that clear in chapter 2. There is a distinction, however, because of the Jews' religion. They are a religion that does not allow openly homosexuality, 
Jesodomy, lesbianism, women with women, adultery, fornication, drug abuse like sorcery. Um, that's what sorcery is, by the way. Sorcery is where we get a, a, the Latin word pharmakia, or, and then we translate that pharmaceuticals. All these different sins, outwardly so, the Jewish nation was against. They were a religious people. And trying to compare and to create an equivalent, you could call them church people, though they were temple people, and not church people in the sense of Christians, but definitely temple people in the sense of religious behaviors and uh, following after what they would call Yahweh, though they couldn't recognize him when he came to the, to, to the world. So what the Apostle Paul does and how he transitions in chapter 2 is he could get a religious community, a religious people such as the Jews or church people today, religious people, especially those of an occultic faith like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, Buddhists, Hindus, or Muslims. Um, they are still being addressed here in chapter 2. It's unlike Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles? And Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So in Matthew 7, it is actually a people who pose as Christians, actually pronouncing Christ as their Lord. But here in Romans chapter 2, it could speak of all the world's religions that actually believe that a morality, especially an outward morality that the Apostle Paul is making reference, can save can make you righteous, can actually confirm a ticket to heaven or paradise or some such place that will have eternal bliss and comfort. If you wanted to know one of the greatest ways that True Christianity stands apart from every world religion, both present and every world religion that has ever existed. It stands apart in saying that all of humanity is collectively wicked and nothing you can do can get you into heaven or paradise. Nothing. It doesn't matter if you pray five times a day, if you give a lot of money. It doesn't matter if all of those good deeds, which they are good deeds, outweigh all of the bad deeds, which is what most religions do. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how many doors you knock on with a white shirt that says elder on it. We are surrounded by cults. And you, 
Everywhere across the street, we have a Mormon temple. It is a doctrine of demons. It comes from hell. Across, just over there, kind of just a few minutes interior, we have a Branhamite church. A people who worship, they say they're Christians, but they worship William Branham. On the side, we have a word of faith church that actually exalts a power, an eternal power that is separated from God. And this very God that we worship needs to use this power to make sure he's eternal and he uses this power to create the world and he uses this power to create us. We are surrounded everywhere by such things. And one of the most unique things about it is the more good you do, the better off you're with God. But if your bad outweighs your good, and then you may get a, a, a ticket to paradise. Then you may have eternal bliss. Then you may not be reincarnated into a slug, but you'll be some glorified creature. Then you will get into paradise. This is a common theme. And it has permeated our thinking to such a degree that that dear person that Pastor Adoyo was speaking of during our communion service, and I'm just, I, I was listening to the song that they were singing today, The Goodness of God. And we'll get into that because it mentions it here in chapter 2. And I just, you know, tears fill my eyes thinking of the goodness of God in our church. The goodness of God and how He has saved so many of us and we were in such terrible places do you know how many transfers we've had from TMT to Eldoret Calvary Chapel Eldoret a lot more transfers than we have had members of our church go over there to get drunk I can tell you that right now God has been so good to us I was surrounded by well I won't say that I maybe never mind I'm, I'm, I'm growing in maturity, guys. I really believe that. I'm not saying everything that comes to my mind. Do you see the commonality? Do you see the connection that everything has? Every religion has when it comes to the idea of good works and righteousness and morality. It's, it's that people can exalt themselves through righteousness. They can earn a place in paradise. They can earn a place in heaven. And the Bible comes along here in Romans and says, No, we cannot. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And only through the shedding of blood there can be remissions of sins. Not through almsgiving or prayer. Not through any other means. Only through the shedding of blood. And not only through the shedding of blood, it can't be the blood of cows and goats and sheep and lambs. It has to be the shedding of a qualified, all-sufficient sacrifice. And the only person's blood that has ever been shed, that has been qualified to save us from our sins, is Jesus Christ. Because you can't have a sinner save a sinner. 
But you can surely have a savior if he's never sinned and Jesus never did. And Paul comes in Romans 2 and he starts to hear the minds. He starts to hear the chants of the religious, of the Jews and their religion of Judaism and all the different religions in the world that create moral people. And he says, oh, you're chanting because I mentioned all of these vile people in chapter one. You're chanting because I said God has the right to kill the homosexual, to kill the sexually immoral. But you should understand, don't judge them because you are a sinner as well. That's what he begins saying. I cannot tell you in any type of clarifying words enough how much God hates a self-righteous person who looks down on other people, who says, look what they've done. Look at their homosexual past. Now they need to f repent, don't get me wrong. Look at their lesbian past. Look at how many abortions they've had. Look at how many children this single mother has. Look at these tattoos. Look at these women wearing trousers. Put a covering on your head. Look at this. And, and then you create a so-called religious people pointing the finger at other people. And I am here to tell you that is not what Calvary Eldoret's about. We are about holiness. We are about righteousness. But we are about accepting the people who need a savior. Sinful people. And saying God loves you. And he wants to save you. Paul. This is brilliant. Romans is utterly brilliant. I've been waiting to teach this book for 12 years. I just didn't think our church was ready 10 years ago. Though I did teach the book of Revelation. But that's much more clear than the book of Romans. You're inexcusable too, he says. You're judging the people being described in Romans 1. You're inexcusable. Don't you know it's the good of goodness of God that leads to repentance? It's the goodness of God that leads to salvation, not your good deeds. It's his good deeds. It's his benevolent mercies. This, is, this could be said, the, the book of Romans... It could be said that it is a commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, a commentary. And that is when Jesus comes and he begins to preach in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says things that are so clarifying that at the end of it, people are like, this man is a man, it says they were in awe. The, the, the congregation, the crowd, they were just like, wow. This guy is incredible. And it's not that his appearance was incredible. It's not that he was wearing these tremendously expensive clothes. It's not that he was so handsome that people were in awe of his presence. 
like Peter Adoyo. It's none of that. He was a common man in appearance. He was a poor man. He didn't have nice clothes. Why were they in awe? The Bible tells us because he is one who spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> what, a, what an insult and a proper insult. It's like, you know, this guy speaks truth. You don't. And truth is authoritative and you're not speaking about the religious leaders. Why? Listen, I, I, I am so tempted to... When I teach the Bible, I want to know not only exactly what the scripture is telling us, because it's telling every single person in the room one single thing. There's not 15 different or 100 different or however many hundred people right here right now, different meanings. It's one meaning. One. And I'm tempted to connect the profundities, to connect the, how brilliant the Bible is you know, is something that, that amazes me. And, and it's good for us to meditate on Scripture. But when you, this commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of what he speaks, he is one who speaks with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees, not because Jesus' appearance is impressive, but it's, it's because he's speaking truth. He speaks truth, and truth is the most powerful thing, the most authoritative thing, authoritative thing that can ever be spoken. And, and guys, consider this, please, you, 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 you deep thinkers, you Bible students, think this. Think about Romans one, what we've been studying. It says that the gospel's powerful into salvation. The gospel is the truth. It's, it, it's even powerful enough to, to save what Romans chapter 1 defines as a terrible people. Lesbians, homosexuals, sodomites, sexually more envious, jealous, proud, boasters, uh, disobedient to parents. All that whole list. And... and how do they get saved? They're suppressing the truth that is in them. That means there's something in them that can relate to truth. There's something in them that says, yes, this is the truth. And for them not to follow it, they have to bury it deep down. Everything that the scribes and Pharisees have been preaching for hundreds of, the year, hundreds of years doesn't make sense. And the crowds cannot articulate, those who follow the religious traditions of Judaism cannot explain why it doesn't make sense, but as soon as they hear the truth in the Sermon on the Mount, they know it's truth. Isn't that fascinating? They're like, okay, I get it now. What these people have been saying I couldn't make sense. We've just been following them because these religious leaders have power but what they are saying makes no sense. Namely, how we save ourselves. Oh, we're the Jews. We are righteous, but the Gentiles are unrighteous. And our righteousness will save us. They miss the entire meaning of the Old Testament. The entire meaning of the Passover. 
The entire meaning of all the religious traditions and ceremonies and symbolism was to point towards a savior, not to point back to themselves so that they could save themselves. And all of these hundreds of years, they've been preaching a false gospel, a incorrect message, and all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene and that image of God in them that Roman 1 is talking about, now they can identify because truth has been spoken. Do you see how powerful truth is? It's amazing, is it not? And they're like, man, Matthew 7, this guy, he is speaking with authority. Now we can say what he's saying is true. And haven't many of us experienced this? Haven't many of us in this room experienced hearing truth? So many of us have gone to churches growing up and you're listening to these pastors and they say, listen, the more money you give, the more rich you'll become. Uh, plant a seed of 100 shillings and you'll get 1,000 shillings. Plant a seed of 1,000 shillings and you'll get 10,000 shillings. Or as Morris Cirillo said at IVC, give 100,000 and you'll get 10 million. And we've been, some of us have followed in that. We're just trying to be good people, trying to respect our pastors and believe what they're saying. And there's a part of us that can identify that because we're selfish. But many of us, it was like, we've been scratching our heads, haven't we? Like those who listened to the Sermon on the Mount and we said, this doesn't quite sound right. This doesn't quite make sense. But you know what? My parents grew up in this church and you know this guy is dynamic and golly I want t 10 million shillings so and then all of a sudden somebody comes along like Jesus Christ and he exposes it through his word and what does your spirit tell you immediately for many people right in your gut somewhere that's truth do you, do you get what I'm trying to say and what Romans 1 is saying is God has equipped us with a tool that is so profound, so powerful that when truth is spoken, God in his mercy and goodness has put something inside of us that says and that can identify that is it. That is it. And in order for any of these world religions to disregard, even if in their minds they actually believe something that is true that is a lie, there's something deep in them screaming out, that's the truth, and they have to suppress it. Why is the gospel so powerful? Because every single person was created by Jesus Christ. So when you speak of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done, something in there says, he is your God. He is your creator which should inspire us and motivate us to share the gospel with every single person, no matter the status. I don't care if it's the president of North Korea or the lowest in society or the most wealthy businessman in Kenya. When you speak Jesus' name, there is power because he created them and there's something in them saying, this is it. This is it. 
Isn't that incredible? I'm just amazed by it. It emboldens me to preach the gospel to every person in the world. It, it, it says, man, I am equipped with something that, that is so powerful that even the unbeliever has to suppress it because it's screaming out that this is the truth. Let me go speak the gospel. It's amazing. And, and, and then you get to this, Paul's like, oh, you think they're without excuse in chapter one. You were without excuse in chapter two. You were inexcusable, you good doer. You were inexcusable, you moralist. You were inexcusable, you Jewish person. Because whoever you judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's when the Jewish or the moralist would say, no, I don't. I don't practice sexual immorality. Well, we got to go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, you've heard it said before. Do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. It's like you've heard it said before that only those who physically do this are guilty. And God is saying, did it not make sense to you before that those who do it in their hearts are guilty as well? Well, let me tell you, they are. And some of us in this room may be a little skeptical and say, man, that's kind of harsh. God can judge somebody, even send them to hell, even pronounce judgment on them if they've lusted in their hearts? This is strict. Boy, that's a tough message. Let me prove to everyone in this room that you agree with Jesus. I don't even care if you're a believer. Let me prove to you that you agree with Jesus about lusting in the heart as adultery. Wife, say your husband comes home one day and he says, wife, I got good news. I saw a beautiful woman in town today in the CBD, okay? And I've been lusting after her all day long. Man, I have undressed her with my heart. I have visualized her naked. And we have had a sexual time in my heart all day long. But wife, I didn't physically do it. High five. Wives, would you give a high five? So you agree with Jesus that that is offensive, that it hurts and offends God when people go around in their hearts wickedness. So we do agree with the truth. That truth that, cre that connects us to our creator. And Paul says, oh, you who judge them, condemn yourself because you practice the same things. You're guilty of adultery. You're guilty of murder because you've hated people. You've been resentful. You've not let go of offenses. You won't forgive. That's murder. 
And, and, and on a side note, a little side sermon here for, for eight seconds. Do you know what mer, um, uh, unforgiveness is equivalent to what you're doing to somebody? You're murdering them. When you won't forgive somebody in your heart and mind, it's as if you're stabbing them in the head and killing them. Because that's how destructive unforgiveness is. You who judge, practice the same things, you're condemning yourself. But we know the judgment of God is, is a, according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Don't you know it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance? And the idea is here, those who aren't repenting, don't think you won't be judged. You are storing up wrath, every single thing that has been done that has not been forgiven by the blood of Christ is going to an account where you will be judged. I don't care how many good deeds you have done. I have um, many you know, many Muslim friends, I love, I love ministering to them. And I've shared this same thing with them about, okay, so you're going to try to do good. You're going to try to do good. Your good's going to outweigh your bad. Well, okay. So is your, is man's judgment greater than, than God's judgment? Oh, no, no. God is perfect. He's, he's merciful and he's righteous and he's perfect. It's like, okay. Say I go kill your entire family and I get arrested. And I'm in front of the judge and you're there and if the police and the judge weren't there, you'd come kill me yourself because you're so angry. And I say to the judge, judge, I'll never do it again. Please forgive me. And by the way, I'll pray five times a day. I'm going to visit Mecca. I'm going to go to the mosque. I'm going to do almsgiving. I'm going to do all these things, God. Or you pick your religion, whether it be whatever religion is. Even atheism has its own morality. You pick it. And, and judge, I'll do that. Will you let me go? Would he be a good judge if he said, he's not going to do it anymore, guys. He's going to do good things. You can go free. Is that a good judge? then why would we expect God to do that? There has to be bloodshed. There has to be a payment. He's saying here in Romans 2, it's the goodness of God, the forbearance, long-suffering, that leads to repentance. But with the hardness of your heart, you're storing up wrath, Wrath upon wrath because you will not recognize the Savior Jesus Christ because you think you're good and you think you're better than those in Romans chapter 1. That's the point. Now, let me talk to you about this goodness of God. The Bible mentions it. Psalm 22, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So goodness really does run after us. Your goodness is running after me. The song says, Psalm 52, 1, your goodness is continual. 
It goes on and on and on and on and on. Psalm 33, 5, the earth is filled with the goodness of God. So it runs after us, it's continue, and it's all around us. Do you understand what God is saying in these few verses? Yes, everyone is collectively sinful. Those who judge are judging incorrectly if they're judging somebody else's sin. And not saying we can't judge. We need to deal with people who are sinning if they don't repent in various forms. But in the sense of judging that you are more righteous than somebody, that's an incorrect judgment. What is, God is good to all of it. He's good to all of us. It seems like an odd place to put a discussion about the judgment of God and his uh, uh, being delayed because of his goodness. We, we get in Romans 1, I mean, the, these terrible uh, things mentioned, all these awful sins, and then at the beginning of Romans 2, and it's going to be a central theme all through the book of Romans, that even the, the religious, even the Jew, they're all guilty, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. And so you have this central theme saying, everyone needs Jesus, everyone needs the gospel, everyone needs salvation. And in the middle of all the talk about wrath and all the talk about judgment and all the talk about sin, it mentions the goodness of God. Church, it is the goodness of God as we meditate upon it that should cause us to overwhelmingly be connected to Jesus, to overwhelmingly worship him and to love him. It is his goodness, not being fearful over his judgment that should get us into line. You're, you know, my, my brother who came here for a couple months, he was 15 years just, I mean, since he was a little boy and he had that age of accountability, never got saved. And he went into a life of terrible sin. And I, early on in my Christianity, when I got saved, I'd be sharing the gospel with him a lot. And then I'd be like, David, don't you understand you're going to hell if you die? Your sin will remain on you. The blood of Christ has not washed you. Don't you know you're going to hell? And, and I thought that would be enough to wake him up. Like, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Let me, let me repent. But as I started walking with Jesus Christ and getting to know him through his word and seeing the absolute beauty of his goodness to, to me and others, I, 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 it changed my whole evangelistic approach. It changed my view on the world and life. And I, one day I was talking to my brother and I said, David, I don't even want to talk to you about hell. You know what? It, I said, Dave, you know what's worse than hell? He said, what? Living an entire life on earth and never experiencing 
the goodness and greatness and person of Jesus Christ. That is worse than hell. Listen, guys, has there ever been anybody like him? Has there ever been anybody like this person? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. How angry would you and I be if somebody took nails and drove it through our hands and mocked us and smacked us in the face with their palms, breaking our face in front of our mother? How forgiving would you be? How forgiving would I be? Who, who is like this person that leaves... The, uh, the, the, the treasures that cannot even, the, there's, there's no house on earth. Uh, 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 Bezos's $500 million boat looks like a pit latrine compared to the glory of heaven. A squatty potty is Jeff Bezos' boat, the owner of Amazon, compared to the glory of heaven. And Jesus says, I'm letting it go to be born in a feeding trough with animals. That, and guys, where animals are, there is uh, feces. Who is like this person? Who, who, who's ever done anything like he has done? Every religious cult leader is uh, trying to grow in power when Jesus gives up his power, gives up his throne. I mean, which one of us would choose, as an adult, I, I've decided I want to go back to diapers and I'm going to start soiling myself. And Jesus is in heaven and says, I'm going to become a baby. <laughs> and I'm going to have to depend upon my mother to clean me up. Who is like this person? Nobody's ever done, nobody's like him. His goodness, those sorts of things that I'm trying to mention to us are the things that we say, oh my God, you are good. Your, your, your sacrifice is beautiful. We always are surrounded by what we think is beautiful. If I do my hair right, if I get the right pair of clothes, if I can do this, I can be more attractive. There's nothing as attractive as the goodness of Christ. Nothing. Here in 2 Peter, the Bible says in verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir your pure minds by a way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing that first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water which the world then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens 
and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for the fire until the day of judgment and perdition and ungodly men. That's the wrath of God that Romans 1 and 2 is talking about. God will judge. He will return. But why isn't he returning? Why didn't he come back a thousand years ago? Why didn't he come back during World War II when his people, the Jews, were being slaughtered for being Jews? The Bible tells us why. Beloved, do not forget this thing that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day to the Lord, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but as long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't he returned? Because he wants people to be saved. Now, he'll, he'll return. He's coming, and he's going to pour out judgment, and his judgment is righteous, and those who aren't born again are deserving of death. We've learned all this in these first chapter and these few verses. But we've also learned that it is because of his goodness that he has not returned. Don't you find it incredibly offensive that people mock God for not returning when the very reason he doesn't return is because he loves them and they mock him for it? That is fascinating. Now, just so you know, it gives us the answer on why one day is a thousand years and is a thousand years is one day, and it is beautiful. Here's the answer. The Lord likes and loves us. Let me explain. Many of you have been in Matatus. You've gotten a, a real long ride. You get into Eldoret. You're already annoyed because these conductors are so pushy. Eldoret, 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 Nairobi, Nairobi. You going to Nairobi? They start following you. Which, by the way, they're the hardest on women. I feel bad for you women. I have seriously, when I, I, I was taking Matatus for like two years... I have seriously defended women I don't even know. It's like, hey, get your hands off her. Don't touch her. I, I was the biggest menace in the bus uh, place that, it, that Kenya has ever seen. I have rolled around the, uh, and I've been in fights with conductors, rolling in the dirt, using my Brazilian jiu-jitsu to choke them out. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Don't touch women like that. So by the time you already get on the matatu, you're angry. And then you're sitting next to people you don't know. And all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if this person's taken a shower in the last year. That ride to Nairobi that is, you know, six, seven hours with stops. It seems like a 50 hour bus ride, doesn't it? It seems like eternity. It's like, oh gosh, when is this going to end? This is terrible. And not only that, in the old days, I don't know if they still do, they pack more people than our seats. They put the wooden seats in between the seats. <laughs> I never knew that it, it just a, a people could be so 
crammed and be okay. It's like, it's like an eternal ride to Nairobi. When is this going to end? But you ever, you get in a car with somebody that you love and you, you enjoy. It's a, your best friend and you're going off to Nairobi and that six hour ride can not, now seem like 15 minutes because you just talk and you talk and you talk and you laugh and you have a good time. Why? Because you like that person. You love that person. Do you know what the Bible just told us? I mean, guys, think about us and how I just described who we are and think about God. We, time goes by faster for us when we're around people that we like, but there's a whole list of people we don't like. And when we're around them, time goes slower. God is saying, I like and love every single person so much that one day is a thousand years to me. And you sit there and you step back and you say, God, how could you like me and love me to where time even slows down from you when I have been so terrible? How? Worship team, come on up. Guys, please listen. It's how could you be so good to me? Why would you love me like this when I've abused you, ignored you, sinned against you, and mocked you? How could you, how could you still like me, love me, good to me so much that, that one day, a thousand years seems like one day to you? Let me tell you why. Because he is a beautiful God. He's absolutely glorious. His goodness surpasses imagination. And do you want to know one of the greatest key to growing in your love for Jesus Christ is to look at him and his love for you knowing who you are. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. It's an amazing goodness. I encourage you this morning, don't be self-righteous. Understand who you are. If people knew your thoughts, you wouldn't have one friend in this entire world. Can you imagine if people could read our minds? Like, oh my gosh, we are no longer friends. And yet God delays his judgment on the world because he loves people who hate him? What kind of God are we talking about? We are talking about the true and living God and his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. Let us bow our heads. Lord, we thank you. Your goodness has overwhelmed us. Your goodness has spoken to us. It has taught us that he 
who's loved us now should be loved back by us. You've taught us how to love, to be forgiving, to be merciful, to be kind, long-suffering. Those beautiful qualities that make up who you are is what causes us to worship you this morning. Thank you for delaying your coming so that we might be saved. If you came back 20 years ago, I wouldn't be saved. If you came back 10 years ago, several people in this room wouldn't be saved. And Lord, if you came back today, we would have family members not saved. We want to see you. But Lord, if you delay your coming one more day, we know it's because of your goodness. And may you find us faithful to share your goodness with this world. I pray, Lord. I pray for that. I also pray for the offering now as we give to you because we love you, because you're worthy. And I pray you would receive it as an act of worship. Give us wisdom as we administer uh, these gifts to expand your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.